0: Every play, every stat, every breakdown, on their own they're essential, but altogether they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat, a new advanced data platform that integrates with sports code and every Huddle product you rely on to create an all-in-one data powerhouse. Huddle Instat's advantage tagging and next-level stat reports help you develop your team, and its global film library helps you find the missing pieces to get the most out of every second of film. Learn more at huddle.com slash timeout want to welcome to the show assistant coach for the Western Kentucky Hilltoppers, Coach Tim McAllister. Coach, appreciate you making some time for us today.
1: Always, always. I appreciate you having me on.
0: I had the unfortunate privilege. That's what I call it now. That's what I call <laughs> our, our D1 Guarantee Games. I had the unfortunate privilege playing against Coach McAllister's team a couple of years back. And uh, ever since that conversation specifically we had before the game, talking about some things, and uh, I wanted to have him on. So today is finally that day. Coach, I'm not a big tell-me-your-story guy on the podcast, but can you yep. get kind of like a one-minute rundown or a one-minute bio of kind of your coaching journey?
1: No problem at all. I was uh, originally not going to coach at all. Uh, ended up coaching a base team in Kyrgyzstan, Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Um, came back and wanted to get my degree, so I worked for Billy Kennedy and Steve Prom at Murray State. Went on to work for Jason Zimmerman at Emory University in Atlanta. Um, from there, I went to Creighton University for four years. From Creighton, I went to uh, Texas Tech for two years. was fortunate enough to be a part of the national championship game and then was at Georgia Southern for three as an assistant coach. And uh, I'm now here at uh, Western Kentucky.
0: You mentioned the last two stops there, Georgia Southern and, and Texas Tech and defense being kind of a cornerstone to both of those programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Texas Tech, Chris Beard teams that I'm sure everybody kind of especially when you guys were making your run. It seemed like that was, like, the only defense people were talking about. So I'm sure, sure they're they're familiar with that. And and then you and, and Coach Brian Berg came in there and immediately made the Georgia Southern squad one of the top defensive squads there in the Sun Belt. So I want to ask you, for, for you personally, mm-hmm. the biggest impact, the biggest people that have contributed for you developing as a defensive coach.
1: I know it's kind of an obvious answer, but obviously – Chris Beard and and Mark Adams were both very influential in that. Brian Berg as well. I think, though, the base for me also came from some of – even even my current boss, Steve Lutz, and, and Greg McDermott. I saw a lot of different ways to do it from them. Um, the scouting report defenses, the different ways that we would change things were very I, – I got a lot of that from Creighton. And then when I got to Texas Tech, it was more of a – we're going to take you out of what you want to do type defense. And we're going to be the ones that dictate it. We're going to be the aggressor. We're not necessarily adapting to everything that you do. We're going to make you adapt to us. So I think those were very influential for me mm-hmm. as far as, hey, these are two very contrasting styles. And obviously there's a lot of ways to win, but I, I very much gravitated gravitated, excuse me, towards that because it was simpler for people to understand. And with the portal and different things, there's a lot of people trying to use to, to find better ways to have one-year programs, one-year success, um, when you can't build up your base quite as much. How do I do less scouting report and more this is who we are and this is what we do on a consistent night-to-night basis? So
0: It, it kind of makes sense, but I think sometimes for some coaches at least from an offensive perspective, we practice what we're going to do. And then when we get to the defensive side of the ball, it's like, all right, let's adjust to whatever the offense is doing. And that's almost kind of a minority probably of coaches are in the camp that you just said, where we're going to do what we're going to do. We don't really care what you guys try to do against it. Is that fair?
1: A hundred percent. And I think it's it's a lot easier when you are the aggressor and when you do something different and a little bit unusual. And we got very fortunate that Coach Adams and Coach Beard and Coach Berg were really good at creating something that was new and hadn't been seen before at that point. And so there were only a couple things that people tried to do against us, especially early on. There were only a couple ways to try and beat it. And it was recruited to. So I, I think those things get lost sometimes and you know, how do you make it successful? Well, one, we switched one through five and we kept the ball on the side. So as you get to that point, and people are like, well, how did you have so much success? Well, it's a lot easier to say that when you have a 6'11 pogo stick who can switch and who can protect the rim. And it's a lot easier when your guards are all, you know, six foot three, six foot four and above, and they can all, they're all physical and they have a mentality about them that you help instill, but, you know, still they have that mentality that I'm not going to let you punk me in the post. I'm not going to let you punk me anywhere. So I think those things get lost sometimes, but there's a lot of credit given to those guys. And then you try and recruit to that, try and recruit to guys that that understand that piece and that want to be a part of that. At
0: the end of the day, it's about the Jimmies and the Joes.
1: That's that's exactly right. Exactly. You mentioned,
0: though, that them playing hard. And I've asked this of several coaches that have been on here. There's sometimes just communicated this like, well, these guys just don't play hard. How much of it was we teach them to play that hard, and then that actually does become a, a part of our culture. How do you achieve that?
1: I do think there is an element of you have to hold them to a standard that is so high that they didn't that they don't think they can do it. And then when they do it, it needs to be rewarded and pointed out. I, I love the disadvantage drill. And we used to play a ton uh, of four guarding five. Before that, when I worked for Billy Kennedy, he used to like doing three guarding four, teaching the multiple efforts, teaching, and then making guys get multiple stops in a row. And as you're flying around, you can't make the excuse, well, we don't have another guy. Well, duh, that's the drill. And when you hold them to such a high standard that they don't even think they can reach it and then they do reach it, I think that you're able to push them even harder as far as playing hard past what they think they can do. And I think that the emphasis of multiple efforts and multiple efforts and multiple efforts and rewarding that day after day after day becomes a part of who they are. And I think that that gets them to play even harder. We talk, it's a very simple phrase that's been used for a long time, but you are what you emphasize. And so if you emphasize multiple efforts, multiple efforts, multiple efforts, and the technique is not something that you always are are harping on, then I think they'll play harder. Now, if you want to be more technically sound, then sure, that's going to be what you emphasize and what you probably get better at. But- I think that those teams played so hard because Coach Adams was consistently, I don't care who rotates sometimes. And that would drive me crazy as someone who's very much a technique guy and very much a that guy should have gone and this guy should have gone here and should have gone there. And that's great, but we all know in game sometimes you just got to go. And so I think that was taught at a really high level um, to those guys. And to, to their credit, they bought into it.
0: I love uh, when you pull the curtain away because we talk a lot in coach talks, like they play real hard, but even, you know, doing the disadvantage drill. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do we get them to play hard? Well, if you're always a man down, it's going to make you play hard. You have to. <laughs> but there were some other things too, that I observed, I was at that final four and you and I had talked about this previously, but even watching your shoot around, sure. like you guys were different. And I feel like that fed into this is how we play hard because it's got to be more than just, well, I, as a coach, hold them to a high standard. I yell a lot of practice and make sure they're doing like there, there were some other things that you guys were doing as a program that led to what people ended up seeing out there on the court.
1: Sure. When we walked out and there's a, there's an open practice and most people shoot for about 30 minutes and uh, you know, they kind of hang around and they enjoy the show I think we started with a charge drill, um, if I'm not mistaken. And I know people are going to think that's over the top and whatever, but that was who we were. We were 100% on board with this is who we are, this is our toughness, and this is how we're going to win. We were going to talk every single drill. Did not matter what it was. You were going to talk. You are going to be loud. The GAs were going to talk. The managers were going to talk. There was going to be an emphasis on uh, excitement, an emphasis on – Uh, Just just all of that. And I think that there were there's also a professionalism and you got to go a certain standard every single day. And when our guys got to the final four, it was it was already ingrained in them. They knew we weren't going to walk out there and just shoot a little bit and hang out and then leave. They they knew that from the jump. So I, I think, though, one thing that gets lost in that is that we would be very much like that. But we would be like that for an hour and a half. And if you think that you can do that for three and a half hours and then have your guys be excited to do it day after day, you're probably not, you're fooling yourself. So at the end of that 40 minute open practice, what did we have? We had a two on two game with two GAs and, and two GA or excuse me, four GAs. And our guys are excited because they have to pick a side and they're watching those GAs go at it and they're, they're going hard. And a couple of those dudes could play. I mean, Darryl is the Kansas killer. Casey Perrin was a better player as a GA probably than he was as a, as a, as a player at Campbell. Um, Ronald Ross was an All-American. So, like, it was a pretty high-level game. But, again, that, it was all-out effort. It was excitement. It was everything that we had. It, it was in everything that we did is what I'm trying to get at.
0: That was probably one of the most exciting parts of the entire day. All the teams (laughs) were there. Uh, There was an excitement and a buzz, not just on the floor, but with everybody that was in that giant arena, which was uh, kind of interesting considering it was, what was that, Friday afternoon or something like that. So, yeah, it was cool. A quick timeout podcast is presented by Dr. Dish Basketball. Dr. Dish machines are the most advanced shooting machines on the market. If you haven't already, join top programs like the Miami Heat, the Philadelphia 76ers, the Duke Blue Devils, and countless others and an upgrade to Dr. Dish Basketball. And now, save an extra $300 on select models when you mention Quick Time Out Podcast. To find out more, visit drdishbasketball.com. A big thanks to 323 Sports for supporting the show. The guys with 323 Sports are a team dealer providing uniforms, gear, equipment, and more to schools and colleges across the country. I've used them on multiple occasions, and their customer service and low prices are second to none. To find out more, visit 323sports.com, where you can reach out directly to a rep at sales at 323sports.com. They'll be sure to do it right for your sports program. I would assume that you've already mentioned a couple of these, but I've found that if you're going to have a strong system like that, Mm -hmm. you have some pretty strong pillars or core values And those things are known of everybody in the program and they're held accountable to those things every single day. What were those pillars and how did you do those things that I just mentioned?
1: Yeah, I I think we were consistently talking about effort, like I talked about, but we were really preaching stop ball, protect basket and no middle. And that seems really simple, but everything boiled down to those things. So as we were teaching, you know, the no middle concept, well, it's easy to say hey we're not going to allow middle when when you're guarding the basketball but we were no middle in our ball screen defense we were no middle in our post defense we were no middle in our on-ball defense when all of those things are extremely simple and you can go back to those pillars i think that it becomes more consistent and more clear to your players so what do those things mean well first of all as that defense was developed and Mark Adams is thinking very much outside the box of how do we, you know, how, how do we gain an advantage? The things that he was thinking, he was thinking spatially. So he is a very unique basketball mind in that he was thinking, I want to take away a portion of the court that is the most important to any, any single offense. And we all know that Once the ball gets into the paint, you're looking at a one in college basketball for the most part, and this fluctuates from year to year. But you're looking at anywhere from a one point two to one point four points per possession if the ball hits the paint. Now, if the ball hits the paint multiple times, that just continues to go up. So when we talk about the defense, we talk about taking away a space, literally space on the court. And then when I came into it, my thoughts were more analytic based which were, okay, let's take away the paint because when there's not a paint touch, the average points per possession is anywhere from 0.7 to 0.9. Well, that would put us as the best defense ever. And so we started thinking that way because Coach was thinking spatially and I was thinking analytically about those things. I think one of the best comparisons for that defense, and this is going to sound out of the box and, and off the wall, is the Syracuse zone. So as people start thinking about spatially, what you want to do defensively, Syracuse takes away basically your short corner and your corner. So they have shrunk the court and they have put more bodies in a tighter space and just taken away areas of the court for you. We were looking to do the same thing, but we were looking to take away the paint, which we thought was even more important than those corners. But again, as you you take a look at the defense, the simpler that you can be to do that, the better chance your your players have in order to grasp it and in order to fly around and execute without thinking. So going back to kind of what, what the question was, is we wanted to make sure that it was extremely simple with our no middle. So our ball screen defense was going to be an ice to switch all the time. On the sides, it was an ice to switch because you're keeping the ball out of the middle. Our post defense was still going to be no middle. And this is probably one of the ones that people do less of. But we were we were going to trap from the baseline side all the time. When you're thinking about all those things, you put those three things together. It's easy to go back and say, no middle, no middle, no middle. If you have a question as a player, you could literally go back to the no middle and say, OK, I, I could probably figure out what we're trying to do. And quickly, Your habits have to change though. So some coaches will abandon the the no middle defense because their players can't pick up the habits in the first month. It's going to take a lot more than a month in order to try and train your body to do something different than what you've done for years. Our players were coming in from, you know, Matt Mooney was coming from South Dakota. Tariq Owens was coming in from St. John's. We had Brandon Francis came in from Florida. So all these guys were were coming in from high-level programs or were high-level players in those programs, and they had been trained a certain way for 20-plus years. And deprogramming them and then programming them back to be able to close out top shoulder in a scramble situation is extremely hard to do. So the level of consistency day after day and the situations that you put them in where it's a live closeout in a scramble situation where you're in a different spot. You could be the help guy. You could be the sink guy. You could be the fill guy. And now you've got to reclose out and not allow middle. Once again is where you have to get to as a defense in order to be able to do that consistently. So
0: what were the specifics of what you taught in addition to the ice? What were the other things that you felt like you were having to teach or reteach those guys so that, there was no middle penetration?
1: I don't know that there was a lot of technical pieces to it outside of, hey, I'm going to close out top shoulder. Um, once we got to the sideline, we really built a, and I'll try and draw it here, we, we called it the house. And it was where our foot positioning should be as we closed out. Did you guys put this on the floor? We, so we on would the take floor? this on the floor every single day. And it's a little bit rough over here, so I apologize. But As you're right here, your feet should be parallel to the sideline. Your foot positioning is literally top shoulder. And this is where guys really get messed up. And this is where guys really get like, this is completely different from what I've ever done. But when that ball is here, your feet are literally parallel to the sideline and you are head on the top shoulder because of the length and athleticism that we had, we would do it all the way up here. I think that, that would be the, the, the biggest thing that you have to take a look at your personnel wise as to whether or not you can do is how far up can I really side is what we called it. You know, how, how far up are we going to side? Because as you get into this area, now your length and athleticism better be in your anticipation, better be really, really good. But as we got into this area, we would switch our feet a little bit to where you're not completely parallel to the sideline you are more so at an angle and then in the middle we would call square. So as we did closeouts on a day to day basis, we would have coaches or GAs in all three of those areas. And you're having a closeout top shoulder at those different foot angles, which is what disallowed the no, the, the middle drives from a ball screen perspective, it puts you in a great position to be able to ice because you're almost already in an ice position. The thing that I think guys struggled with is, one, they felt like they were going to beat. They were going to get beat really quickly. What we had to convince them was, one, you're already taking away one way that they can go. So you're already basically loaded to be able to go with them baseline. We're forcing them exactly where we want them to go. So you're you're good. Like, don't, don't freak out here. And then the second piece was that we would – hammer home and we called it the goalie people call it the hole people call it the help guy but head up on a hoop we would drill that so hard that we would never not have one if the ball was on either side anything outside of a lane line we were going to have a goalie so we were we were trying to figure out ways to best get guys into that goalie spot we were trying to make sure like hey, we're, we're really not getting there in practice with a couple guys and in different situations. And How can we remind them? Like what's a unique way to remind them? And just to give you kind of how, you know, Coach Beard, Coach Adams, Coach Burke, their minds work because they're, they're a little bit different. I'm off too, but don't get me wrong. But they came up with a, the, the most West Texas way I could possibly think of. They, they came up with a cowbell. So during practice, we would have someone on the baseline and if there was no one in help and the ball was anywhere on the side, all of a sudden you're hearing a cowbell and instinctively like our guys got better. Our guys got better quickly. And, you know, at first it was, I think maybe the first or second time we did it, coach, coach Beard stopped practicing. And he goes, Hey, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Do that again. Do that again. And everybody kind of laughed and then it just became a part of what we did. And again, that was, it, it was a good way to, break the tension and break, you know, all of that. And it was very well-timed from coach. And uh, I think the guys really appreciated but it also illustrated a point. Um, And those guys really bought into that.
0: So outside of just having – who was the pogo stick?
1: Tariq Owens. That's right.
0: Okay. So aside from having Tariq down there that was just kind of patrolling behind, and I'm sure that gave a level of comfort to the guys guarding the ball. For sure. But as you watched film – I noticed that the help, the helper guys, that wasn't just something that you guys talked about and they were there sometimes, but you guys were great at that. How did you drill that? Was it just a lot of five on five and a lot of cowbell or was <laughs> it, what, what was, it, was it, was it, did you do small, small stuff? How
1: did, how did you guys get so good from that perspective? We would build it up a little bit and I, I, I don't know how much I would straight build it up anymore, but We built it from a two-on-two perspective to where the goalie's coming and he's going to take a charge. Um, I think one of the best games that that can be looked at for just straight taking charges is we played Duke in Madison Square Garden that year. Uh, Duke was, I think, the number one team in the country. It was right before Christmas, and we took eight or nine charges. You know, the article had just come out on Zion about how getting hit by him was the equivalent of being hit by like a mini Cooper at like 30 miles an hour or something. We had to breach that with our guys. Like, Hey, listen, uh, we saw the article too. We're still going to take them. And I think the first time that we took one, I mean, the bench absolutely erupted, but neither here nor there, we would go two on two, have that guy rotate over and then three on three. And we would have the smash down is what we call the fill guy. And then we would go four on four and then we would have the rotation out I think the best thing that we did, and, and the way that I I've kind of evolved in teaching it, is that I believe that rotation should be done five on five, and I really like starting it at a disadvantage. So trying to put them in three or four scenarios where, okay, you get beat on the lane line, and there's a guy in the ball side corner, and now the goalie has to come. We're gonna we're gonna kick it out. There's you know two guys on that side, but there's one guy that really should be rotating. There's a guy on the block. There's not a guy on the block. And trying to rotate out of that, and, and it goes live once it, you know, touches that guy's hands. So you get the, the correct rotation. You start getting guys flying around, rotating out of it. And it puts emphasis on, hey, you, you know, you you can adjust the scoring to where, hey, if the ball gets to the, the paint, the offense gets a point. If the ball doesn't get to the paint at all, the defense gets a point. If there's a stop, um, then the defense gets another point there's a score, you know, another point. But I really believe in that more so than just the straight buildup of the rotations. I believe in playing it quite a bit more, trying to show them more in live play, how it should be done and creating solutions, because it's not going to be exactly the same every time. They're not going to be in the exact same spot. This guy may move a little bit. So trying to introduce new situations and maybe doing the same situation twice a week. But we would drill that so often. Uh, it was a disadvantage where you get beat, you side and ride, which I think is a big piece of it. We we called it side and ride, basically staying on his hips, showing your hands, putting your chest on him, and then trying to get deflections, trying to make that pass really tough as the, goal, as the goalie rotates over. Um, and then the rotations behind it were going – we had done them so often that guys knew I'm flying around. Something controversial within coaching circles is that we didn't talk a lot. Like we weren't an elite level talk team when it came to rotations. It was more of a, I know I'm going here. He knows he's going there. And we just made very aggressive and very direct movements. And it just told other, other guys where to be. And they had, play, they had done it so often together that they knew where the other guys were going. I know that's kind of controversial in coaching circles because we're all screaming out of the talk and they're going like, coach, I knew where he was going. We're fine. Like I got this. And I think if you can get to that level, obviously it's great, but I wouldn't tell you not to talk. Uh, I just thought that was an interesting piece that came out of that from those guys being so good together.
0: Did you all switch there at Georgia Southern? I mean, did you stick with that? Was it all one through five?
1: So for the first two years, we switched everything one through five in year three. We decided to not switch the five in some situations. And then uh, one thing that we took from Texas Tech and uh, that I'm almost I'm not hesitant to say because I think everybody can, can do some variation of this, but I like the ways that, the, the way that we phrased it. We talked about games like fights. And some people talk about you know a fight you know, fight might be four minutes or whatever. We talked about it as far as all right, we're going to have some different punches that we're going to throw. And the punches were really just a change up. It could be a three-quarter court press. It could be a, we're going to go and trap the first pass. It could be, we're going to trap a ball screen. There's a lot of different ways to throw a different punch, but it was a different look that we hadn't been doing out of our base defense. So that third year at, at Georgia Southern, we used the switching one through five, you know, with the five more as a punch than we did as our base. And I thought that those little things to keep you off balance, especially out of timeouts, are really important. Coach Beard used to talk about like, "Hey, we got a bunch of Hall of Famers that we're playing against here. Pretty sure they're going to have something good out of timeout. We might want to throw something different at them. Might want to throw a little different look at them because I'm pretty sure whatever Bill Self is drawing up, we don't really want to guard. So, yeah, let's let's go throw a punch. Let's let's show them something different. Uh, you know, a zone that's not really a zone on the third pass it turns into man." So, you know, whatever. I know that's a roundabout way of saying that. But, yes, that third year we we stopped switching one through five as our base, but we still used it as a punch.
0: I love those defensive ATOs. I think more Mm -hmm. coaches are starting to use those and uh, probably will continue to have more people using those. One of the main reasons I asked about the switching one through five, I found that the indecision oftentimes, especially in those help situations, was when the goalie steps over – how long are we going to be guarding the ball with two players? And sure. then what happens on the backside? What do you like or what did you guys do The kind of signals? Did you kind of peel off to another guy to go ahead and get the rotations going? Or how did you get back to neutralizing the potential advantage that the offense had right. when you were basically outnumbered out on the perimeter?
1: So, And that's an area that I do think we could have probably gotten a little bit better. But we were so focused on trying to get a deflection. Um, within the, the the initial pass out of it. And then within the rotations, we were trying to be aggressive and, and potentially even get a steal in those rotations. But because our closeouts were no middle and because we were basically not allowing passes to the middle even at times, it was easier for us to rotate out after the pass went out. So when the pass went out, the guard that was you know that was siding and riding, he would then go and rotate back out. Um, to wherever it was on the perimeter, primarily because we were trying to keep our big lower, because Tariq was such a good rim protector. Noren Sodiase, who was underrated as far as that went, over a block and a half a game, I think. Um, we wanted to be able to try and keep those guys low, and we were switching everything anyway, so it didn't really matter who they were guarding down there. It allowed that guy to stay in the goalie spot to be able to be low, and and sometimes they would even, you know, Tariq was so smart as far as his timing and things like that, it was almost frustrating to to talk to him on film because you were like, hey, man, that's not your rotation. And he'd be like, coach, I'm timing that up. And Matt knows to take the next one. For me, that was that was a shift to have such a high IQ player that had such an elite level skill set. It, it was fun. It was fun, but it was a learning experience too because you're going, hey, man, you're supposed to be in the goalie spot. He said, coach, I want him to shoot it. I want him to shoot it because I'm going to throw it into the third row. Okay, I got you. you. No no worries. As long as you keep doing it, I'm good with you. Yeah, he was elite, that's for sure. All right, you
0: mentioned the – we kind of got into it a little bit early, but you mentioned the move over to Georgia Southern and Mm -hmm. the way that you and Coach Berg kind of split things up, you know, the offensive, defensive coordinator, that kind of thing. Um, Being in charge of a defense now, was there anything that you changed or adapted – I know you mentioned the switching part of it. Was there anything else that that you found that you liked better or liked differently just because of personnel?
1: I am much more play oriented. You know, we we talk. You talk a lot about small sided games, um, different ways to do things. I'm very much in trying to create solutions, but then having some base principles. I think that I was really big on the principles of our switching you know, our talk, touch, take, how we were going to switch off the ball, on the ball. And then I got really wrapped up into, you know, how, what are the main ways that people score? So transition, straight line drives, whether that's off a closeout or, you know, just straight guarding the ball and then ball screens. So how do we get better at minimizing the best things that people do? And then if there's anything in your league that's really prevalent, You know, some people that's post, you know, post-ups or handoffs or, you know, a team that's really good at, I don't know, off-ball screening. Uh, How are we going to try and neutralize what they do best rather than, you know, focusing a ton of time on a buildup of things that people don't do? And, And not to say that people don't do some of those things, but how do we win the most amount of games? So I got really caught up in that. And I think that that benefited our team at times. And then other times, obviously, it was something that, man, I wish we would have worked on that a little bit more. So I never thought, you know, hey, we weren't prepared for flares. But uh, we didn't see a lot of flares. So are you practicing what is going to help you win games? And are you getting good at defending the actions that are going to help you win games? I think those things are, are really important, and I came away even more convinced of those things. Stopping dribble penetration, how do you do it? I'm pretty convinced that it's really hard to guard you know, these players one-on-one now. I think that there's ways to minimize it and to mitigate it, but you got to be really good at it and you got to work at it every day. So those things I came away even more convinced of. Um, and then there's obviously things that I think would have adjusted and would like to you know, have made notes for myself going forward about, all right, how do we get better at some things without devoting a ton of practice time to it? How do we get these guys into film and be very concise with, this is the one thing we I wanna get across this week. We're not gonna be able to get it into practice as much, but we have to get some mental reps and they need to understand it.
0: As a analytically based guy, mm-hmm. were there things or are there things That you really try to target either as goals or focus in on number wise
1: to keep your team focused on the most important things? Sure. I'm I'm big on points per possession. And I'm big on trying, you know, obviously, I think there's things that in game can get guys really excited. I was very big on kills. You know, hey, let's try and get seven kills within the game. If we can get seven kills, we're going to win probably 75, 80% of the time. And and those stats have, have fleshed out for us. But at the same time, it, it keeps guys engaged in, in game. Hey, man, going into a timeout, and, and Coach Berg was great about allowing, you know, me to have a voice within that timeout prior to him coming in. So come in and say, hey, we're, we're at two stops right now. Let's get a third coming out of timeout. Here's some things that are hurting us. You know, they're probably going to come out of this ATO, and you know they love to run, you know, the ball screen with the exit. Let's make sure that we're, we're talking through the switch on the exit. And then right here in the middle on the ball screen, let's get into this basketball and not let him use the screen. Or hey, let's let's really get under that that ball screen because remember he's only a 20% shooter off the bounce. But overall, I, I think setting goals for guys is really good. It's just whether or not you emphasize it because I've seen the goals up on the board behind me and you go through them at the beginning of the year and we're not gonna allow 50% and we're not gonna allow them to shoot 42% from the field. And, We want them to shoot 33% from three. Okay. Do the guys remember that? Are they thinking about that in game? Probably not. Okay. Can we get through two things in the scout? We're not going to let that guy get to his right hand. We're not going to allow more than eight points in transition. Things of that nature, I think, are more important. And and you can really emphasize and key in on, um, like I said, trying to take away the most amount of points. If I know that you score 17 points in transition and you're one of the top 50 in the country per game, then let's try and keep them to eight. We're probably going to have a great chance of winning the game. And if we're going to get seven kills, then we're probably going to be in a good shot to win the game. And at the end of the game, if the game's tight, if we can take away one thing from their best player, we're probably in a, in a better position than, than we would have been. Two things
0: are really – kind of stuck out from what you just said. It, it seemed that when I gave them fewer things, like the kills, mm-hmm. that allowed them to focus better. Yeah. And then the second thing was analytics, not for the sake of analytics, but analytics for the sake of me being able to then reverse engineer then what we practice, what we work on. Yeah. And that information allowed me to be more focused. And then it allowed me com- to communicate to them what actually mattered and gave them the l- less to think about and uh, really help their focus. So it's kind of all of those things working together. So, yeah, it's interesting that you said that too. That's Coach Tim McAllister, assistant coach for the Western Kentucky Hill Coach, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: I appreciate you having me.